Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Be a leader in loss prevention by implementing integrated solutions that enhance safety, reduce shrink, and helps improve merchandising, operations, and customer service. Bosch Integrated Security and Communication Solutions span zones 1 through 4 in the LPRC's zones of influence, while enriching the customer experience and delivering valuable data to help increase retail profitability. Learn more by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast. This is our special weekly edition. Um, as always, joined by Tom Meehan, uh, Tony D'Onofrio, our special guest, JP, and uh, of course, our producer, Kevin Tran. And uh, what we're going to do is just do a quick run through, bring everybody up to speed from some of the information that we've got. Uh, always, always trying to support the LPRC and uh, community as well as the industry uh, and our partners. So um, what we'll start off with a little bit, of course, about what's going on with COVID-19. Here we are. We're still involved, uh, heavily engaged and heavily affected and um trying to keep track of some of the therapeutics, uh, vaccines, and other supportive care research that's going on, including testing. And uh, I have the opportunity, uh, being a UF, to join in on uh, some of their special webinars where their clinical and preclinical researchers go through what they know, what others know, uh, what they're working on, what might be coming up next. So, uh, of course, pretty exciting. I mean, over 5,000 trials underway that are known um, and uh, but as far as now another major, major uh, uh, level three type trials going on where we're talking about um, large scale over 30,000 uh, test subjects randomized uh, to either control or treatment. Um, this is a, that promising vaccine that, that came about 62 days after uh, the uh, virus, COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2 was uh, the genomic components were uh, specified and articulated. Um, so let's keep our fingers crossed. So far, it appears to be very efficacious and safe. The same typical side effects you might have from any vaccine because let's face it, we're activating uh, our body's uh, uh, defense mechanisms. So we're going to experience something hopefully. And so that's what we see with side effects normally. Um, uh, some new research coming out on how COVID-19 uh, hides uh, once it gets into a cell, how it uh, makes, tries to fool or does fool both our uh, innate and adaptive immune systems. So now knowing that mechanism, uh, there you can imagine thousands of physician scientists around the world are mobilized to try and affect that as well as everything else that's going on. Uh, but pretty fascinating listen to the science behind what's happening yesterday. It was really an intriguing uh, webinar that uh, UF Health put on yesterday. A lot of MD, PhD students that are heavily involved in research but also understand the clinical aspect. So it's kind of a neat uh, view from that standpoint. So uh, mask, more and more evidence on mask, how that blocks the droplets from uh, viremic people, um, particularly if both subjects are wearing the mask in addition to distance. So <clears throat> obviously still recommending that we uh, try and stop the spread that way. Um, we're looking still at, uh, of course, a lot of demonstrations, a lot of violence, still looting some targeted looting. Um, some of the national brands are being looted uh, and targeted. Some of the Antifa, Revcom, or Boogaloo uh, subjects that are taken into custody, they've got lists, targeting lists, and things like that, like we see with organized retail crime criminals. 
that know exactly where they're going and what they're after because they know they've got a way to convert things to cash. We're seeing some of the same type of behavior here uh, during the demonstrations. Uh, the demonstrations are not just localized in Seattle or Portland, but we're seeing some serious and dangerous ones that spring up uh, and go back down, uh, whether it's in New York City or Chicago, uh, Oakland, uh, Austin, uh, Atlanta, and other places. So uh, everybody's continuing to try and better understand some of those mechanisms and what we can do to better defend um, while we engage with all of our partners uh, in the community to try and uh, prevent in the first place. The problem is outside agitation uh, and encouragement and funding and uh, equipping that's going on as well. Um, as far as uh, some some Antifa attacks on now black demonstrators, uh, if they carry an American flag in addition to a Black Lives Matter flag. So some new dynamics that are being brought to light and trying to understand how this is happening and what we can do to, to better and less violently affect it. Um, some of the other things that are happening, uh, LPRC, again, we're having an all retailer call next week um, coming up where it will be discussing, uh, again, lessons learned. We've had a little bit of time looking at COVID-19, a little bit about the rioting and looting, uh, but for the retailer members to, to dig deep, to share what they've been experiencing, how they uh, put up defenses and adjusted and adapted their, their team members, their tactics, their technologies, uh, and then now uh, some readjustments that they've been making as well um, as they move forward. So we want to continue that learning loop process uh, with each other and further tease out uh, research uh, on the R3 front, the rapid response research that we're working on. We've expanded and continue to expand to more different types of stores, uh, particularly with curbside, looking at the dynamics, understanding uh, better, safer, more efficient, cost-effective ways to handle curbside uh, and other low no contact um, methods. So stay tuned on all that. Uh, we had a meeting uh, good planning meeting last week, series of calls, and then an in-person, safely uh, conducted meeting with uh, University of Florida Director of Security and Technology and three of his team members uh, did a security audit on the UF Innovate Hub building where our labs are located. And um, that's going to become a showcase of uh, guardianship uh, protection. And so look for the parking lot, um, the entry exits, the hallways, common areas, and then our lab spaces to provide an amazing infrastructure to do a ton of R&D. Um, we've got a lot of partners lining up, uh, including Bosch, uh, Axis, Centromatic, uh, NVIDIA, and many others that are going to be providing a lot of technical infrastructure. Um, but we're looking at specific scenarios and how we want to better enable the green shopper experience, the, one, the person we want there that's working or shopping there, and of course, impeding the red shopper, repelling the red shopper, documenting the red shopper uh, for possible uh, incarceration, if that's what it takes. Um, but uh, further, through uh, Operation SaveCore, the NSF plating grant we've got, we're going to be now looking at, once we make this a much smarter, safer place, how do we connect that? Uh, so we'll have the opportunity with some mass transit, um, including a driverless vehicle, semi-autonomous, um, bus, and then um, looking at that pathway to the greater city of Gainesville, which is becoming a smart city and linking in with some of their smart lighting and some of the other pathways. And then the underpinning of some pretty powerful artificial intelligence capabilities to start to learn and understand dynamics, traffic movements, and prediction uh, for, again, accommodating comfort, safety, and so forth. 
So very, very exciting. Um, many of you know we we participated. Uh, the three of us are regularly on this podcast in the Global Retail Crime Summit. Uh, it's our understanding that uh, all of those sessions are now available for those that would like to go at their leisure and look at them, put them out to their team members. Uh, we participated at Access webinar on the science of crime prevention last week. Again, that's going to be available. You can also find these links on lpresearch.org on our website, go into the Knowledge Center. Uh, Kevin's making those available as well to all of our members and others. Um, so I think that's the, the main thing that we're looking at um, here from the LPRC. Impact, very exciting. Another big planning meeting Friday. Um, we've got record numbers already enrolled and we, we, we're anticipating a huge record number for that first week in October. Uh, for virtual impact this year for the first time, as well as the strategy at for the most senior leaders. So with no further ado, I'm going to go over to uh, our partner, Tom Meehan. Tom, take it away. Uh, thank you, Reed. Uh, just uh, one quick note, just to be repetitive, the, the Global Retail Crime Summit, if you missed out, I know it was a full, uh, a full day of uh, a whole a bunch of great speakers. Uh, Tony and, and I and Reed all, all got to speak a couple times there. So definitely tune into it. Um, I think you probably have a week's worth of content there. Really, really good stuff. So a couple things today. One is um, you may have you may have heard about this. It depends on uh, what news streams you follow, but Garmin had a pretty substantial ransomware attack. Uh, so Garmin GPS company, they lost pretty much everything. Uh, and it was held in a ransomware attack. So for those of uh, your listeners that aren't familiar with how ransomware works, basically uh, hackers work to get into your system, whether it be through an email or a pop-up and you you activate this ransomware in your system and it basically encrypts all of your files and then uh, the hackers go ahead and extort money. So for Garmin, they asked for $10 million um, with huge, huge ransomware attacks like this. Uh, obviously the payment, becomes a big challenge. Garmin uh, was crippled. Uh, so if you use Garmin for any um, of their health tracking um, applications, all of their data was locked down. Uh, the verdict is out of whether they're going to pay or not. It does actually look like they will pay the ransomware, but they're still uh, up in the air. There have been some early reports that they had already paid and, and they didn't. And then um, just kind of interesting notes of whether there's what the tax tax implications are of if they pay that ransomware. So um, there's a there's a very mixed opinion. If you pay ransomware, does it encourage people um, to continue these type of attacks? Also, what's the risk that they don't give you the key to unencrypt your files? The challenge and reality here is that it becomes a business decision, much like any other decision we're faced with in a fraud is what's the impact on your customer base and, and how do you get back into the business quicker? And that really leads me to, you know, the increase of ransomware attacks specific around COVID-19, information about masks, vaccines and short supply commodities, hand sanitizers being used as channels to get ransomware to both the business and the private sector, financial scams offering you know, government assistance if you haven't gotten your unemployment yet, if you're looking for a mortgage relief, all with embedded ransomware, downloads for technology, um, video and audio, things that you know when you're sitting at home you'd wanna use, especially around conferencing platforms and free offerings. Uh, these are all these are all things that are would say pre-COVID were definitely a challenge, but as we're 
much more remote and we're, we're sitting on our computers more we just have to take that extra step to be reminded that if we don't um, recognize an email not to click on anything if there's a strange pop-up don't enable uh, things there are a lot of protections in place today but unfortunately ransomware is one of those ones that um, kind of is a little challenging sometimes for a detection suites to come up with so endpoint management doesn't always detect it there really are three major challenges um, and this is both in the business and the and the private sectors during the pandemic uh, from a business standpoint uh, your your threat landscape has changed dramatically so you in most situations you have it built to have a small workforce out uh, today you're you're of a, a huge amount of uh, network changes that needed to happen happen overnight so your the threat landscape changes that way um, you in some cases uh, cybersecurity professionals uh, whether you're at the university a business um, or you know even a small business they had to change their controls you know they had to adapt and permit more flexibility for uh, remote working practices and then security teams you know have to manage incidents in unfamiliar conditions so if you think about what's going on today you have a cyber event uh, while there's a protest while you have stores closed while people are sick while uh, they're remote all of the those things really uh, make what I would say is already a complex situation even more challenging. So uh, ransomware has been on the rise uh, for the last several years, but I think what we're seeing now is very specific targeted attacks around COVID. It's just a reminder to really think through. Uh, none of us are immune to it, and it is extremely disruptive of when it occurs. Uh, every few months or so, there's a major, major uh, impact. If Remember, I, I would say uh, we did cover it on Crime Science Podcasts where um, some municipalities, uh, full states had ransomware attacks that really created havoc. So just something to keep in mind. And the news also, and this is just kind of when we talk about uh, protection, there were seven VPNs that, uh, that had leaked their log data. And for uh, listeners of virtual private network, this is really not generally going to be this type of um, thing is not generally going to be a business vpn but a vpn allows you to connect securely and basically creates an encrypted tunnel for your traffic um, what's interesting about these seven that leaked their logs is all seven of them claim to not keep logs so the interesting point here was these were services that were um, advertising they did not keep logs and these logs were leaked and what the logs actually show is um, IP to IP um, traffic, so it actually shows where you surfed. is isn't detrimental from like an identity theft, it is from a privacy standpoint that people could actually see what you were doing. Uh, it's important to note that um, these services were predominantly free services and what I continuously kind of remind people is if nothing is free, um, it's not really viable for a company to not log you, they need to be able to monetize the activity somehow. So. Um, G while VPNs certainly keep you safe uh, in some capacity, it's important to know that it doesn't offer full anonymity. So it's just a reminder. I think I constantly am reminding folks to use your VPN that's provided from your business uh, or get a good private VPN if you're uh, traveling or if you want to do, you know, keep uh, an extra layer of protection. It's certainly not a foolproof, but if you're traveling in these unprecedented times, I would highly recommend making sure you have a good one to, to secure your trans, uh, uh, your conversations. And then I'll, I'll round out with, I know we talked a little bit about this um, in the last couple of weeks, but uh, nation state attacks still are on the rise. So the Department of Justice uh, 
charged two uh, Chinese nationals who allegedly um, were hacking the COVID-19 research, both at academic medical universities and um, public companies around vaccinations, as well as both the United States, the UK and Canada are uh, have allegations against Russia for cyber attacks on similar nature going around COVID-19 uh, research. Again, the, we, we're talking about current events here, and the key here is that um, there is a, a fine line between trying to steal research data and becoming, being getting in and actually causing havoc. So with these are these are expected or um, thought to be nation state attacks where they're they're sponsored by uh, the government. Uh, it's important to note that the Russian uh, hack was tied to a group that is loosely connected to the government, where the Chinese um, attack these folks were at least allegedly working for the government. It's just a reminder out there that this is not just, um, you know, we're, we're in an odd situation here where we have nation state attackers. We have um, what I would say is weekend warriors, people that are sitting at home now um, that are doing it and then professional hackers all coming after that. Uh, and it, it also leads us into, as we get closer to the election, that uh, these attacks are going to probably get worse. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Tony. Thank you very much, Tom. Uh, and uh, really, first, a uh, great pleasure to introduce my special guest, or our special guest, John Pierre or J.D. Camel, who is a retail omni-channel and RFID specialist. He is a recognized leader in the Canadian and U.S. RFID communities with 20-plus years' experience. Uh, prior to joining RFID Sherpas, he led RFID practices at VeriSign and Bell Canada. He also led a mobility solutions practice at Cap Gemini. JP is a frequent speaker, author of multiple articles, and was co-chair of APC Global Canada. And he's also an inventor. He holds 15 patents in RFID and mobility. So it's my great pleasure to have JP tell us where we are in retail with RFID. JP. Perfect. Thank you very much, Tony. So, from a, I'll give you, I'll give you kind of a, a high level over, over, uh, overlay of the landscape of, of where things are from an RFID perspective, and then we'll talk a little bit about where how RFID has impacted retailers, especially from a COVID perspective, and how they've been leveraging the data that they've been able to gather to do more within COVID. Um, and then I'll, I'll, uh, I'll see if there's any anything I've forgotten. I'll, I'll let you uh, ask any questions if appropriate. Um, so really when we talk about RFID, there's a few things that, that kind of jump to the forefront. Really RFID is a data collection tool. It's the ability to rapidly collect without, without the requirement for line of sight information within the store. And so you can get a full inventory of an entire store you know, in an hour, in, a two, in two hours, depending on the size of the store, um, very quickly and very accurately. And what does that mean? What, how does that translate? Well, really what that means is that stores can now start to operate with the true inventory position of that store known. And that has a massive impact from an operational perspective, from a planning and allocation perspective, from an ability to get the right product onto the floor perspective, um, and then also from being able to make much better decisions back at head office with regards to things like LP and other things. So I'll get into a couple of those things um, and kind of what the implications are. So you know, we, I usually break it down into customer experience, 
impacts, operational impacts, and financial impacts. And if we talk about the customer experience impacts, usually what we're talking about there is the ability to ensure that you have the full assortment on the floor that you want on the floor for the customers. So making sure that if it's in your store, you've got it on the floor and available for your customer to shop, being able to minimize um, and, and if you do, you know, if you do have to disconnect from a customer, you have shorter disconnects um, and disengagements from your shoppers while they're in your stores. And then the ability to really connect the online world with the physical world. And so, you know, you've seen retailers do a really good job of this. If I now know exactly what I have in the store um, in, in real time or near time, I can actually put that information onto the web to try to drive traffic into the stores or help, re- or help customers know if the item that they're looking for is actually in the store before they show up. And that's actually one of the things that uh, some retailers have been doing very well during COVID to really kind of try to drive some of that traffic into the store. If somebody wants to try something on or do something, they can ensure that it's actually in the store through, through the web. Um, if you talk about operational impacts, you see a whole slew of areas where really retailers are, are able to make big differences. So from a store management perspective and from a labor perspective, most retailers are finding that they're able to do much more um, in a shorter period of time. And so you're able to be more efficient in doing things like filling the floor. Um, you're able to really do more with less, which is really important during this time. Um, and then really kind of connecting from an operational perspective, one of the key things we're seeing is that omnichannel piece. And so in the past, when you're, when you're trying to turn on omnichannel, whether it's buy online, pick up in store, or buy online, fulfill from store, what you're seeing is you're usually applying some level of buffer stock to the inventory to make sure that the item that you are trying to sell is actually in the store. So as you know, most retailers, um, according to NRF, retail inventory accuracy at the SKU level sits somewhere between 65 and 75%. And so most retailers are applying a buffer stock um, to say, at least if I don't have at least X number of these in stock, don't make it available in my omnichannel, um, in my, for my omnichannel customers. And so whether you're going two or three, whatever that threshold is, essentially you're closing off the amount of inventory you have to sell. And so from an RFID perspective, what you're able to do is you know exactly what's in that store at that moment. There's no guesswork anymore. And then you can make the decision, do you want to say I need to have at least one in the store? Do I need to have at least two in the store? What do you want to do based on your own, um, on your own business rules rather than on a um, concern about what you actually have in the store? And so we're seeing the available product from an omnichannel perspective uh, really go up with retailers who are using these types of solutions to drive the available uh, product. Um, there's, there's a whole slew of other operational benefits. We see things like uh, if right through the supply chain, if you can start to have visibility right from the point of manufacture, right through your supply chain, what we start to see, especially for, uh, for brands who have a wholesale business, um, being able to do something at the, at the point of manufacturing, ensuring that it's being packed correctly, um, and if you, especially if you're doing ship, uh, direct shipments from, from the factory, then you're able to cut down on some of those chargebacks. You're also seeing that in the supply chain as things throw into, flow into your own supply chain. If you're going from your own DCs out into another um, another retailer, you know, from a brand to a retailer, or even from a, a store or a brand out into its own stores, you're able to have much more effective and accurate shipping um, directly there. And having the ability to say, I know I shipped this, it was in the carton, um, is very helpful um, really right across the board. 
when you start talking about, well, what are the financial impacts of some of these things? And so, you know, typically when you talk, talk about things like back-to-front replenishment and ensuring you've got the right product on the floor, um, you don't have any holes in your inventory, you're able to replenish that throughout the day as you're selling through on some of the product, you start to see, you know, an increased, um, an increased number of, uh, of units being sold because you've got the right product on the floor at the right time. Um, but also, especially for fashion merchandise, you start to see increased margins, which are specifically due to more, in, more full-price selling. So as you can move up that chain of full-price selling, you're able to sell more product that full, uh, closer to full-price and therefore increase your overall margins. We see uh, some retailers are indicating that they're seeing a reduction in the amount of labor needed in the store to do things like replenishment and refill. Um, and you're starting to see higher conversion rates as well, which, of course, in this day and age, maximizing conversion rates is really critical. And when you start to take a look at the data, how are you using that? Planning and allocation, you're able to do more in the store. You're able to get the right product to the right store. Um, you're taking out any of that guesswork, and you're making sure you've got what you have. But also one of the things that we're seeing retailers really, you know, retailers who are starting to get mature in this, in this area is be able to start cutting production and saying, you know, I know that I have too much product in my supply chain. And now that I know exactly what I have, where it is, and what's been used, I can actually make better decisions on what I want to produce. And so we start to see retailers who have gotten to that maturity level who start to cut back on actually products that's being manufactured, but still be able to meet and exceed their sales numbers. When we start talking about other areas, you know, one, one area that obviously is of, of real importance in this podcast is from a loss prevention side. And there's a number of areas where we've seen some real benefits. And so the one thing that we talk about with all of our clients um, as they're rolling out um, RFID is to say, let's take a look at the analytics that RFID is driving. And the reason for that is, you know, there's a whole slew of RFID-enabled loss prevention solutions that require a fair bit of capital to be implemented. So things like um, RFID at the point of sale, um, you know, doing fraud management and doing checkout and doing a whole bunch of things at that at point of sale, which then allow you to do some alarming at the exit. And of course, it's different than the traditional EAS um, in that, you know, the traditional EAS solutions give you a beep, but you don't actually know what's at the door versus RFID will, is uniquely identified right down to the unit. So you will actually know what's actually leaving that door. Um, be able to know, you know, is it your own product? Is it someone else's product? What exactly from your store is being taken? And that information can be pushed down to whoever's, whoever is doing the intercept. Um, but all of that requires a fair bit of capital, uh, whether you're putting exit readers or whether you're putting readers at your point of sale. Um, and so things that, things that can be done without a lot of capital but have a tremendous value from a loss prevention perspective is really some of the analytics and leveraging the RFID data that's already being collected as part of the cycle counts in the stores. And what do I mean by that? If a cycle count is being done in the store twice a week, you can start to see trends in the data from a full inventory snapshot taken out over a period of time and start to make decisions based on that information. And so traditionally speaking, you know, you may do counts, you know, you may do one, two, three full counts in a store per year, depending on the store. Um, and then do um, snapshots or smaller cycle counts or inventory counts for smaller for categories that are that are high shrink or have been problem areas. But if you can get a real time snapshot of the actual inventory in that store twice a week, which essentially is like doing a full count of that store or a manual count of that store twice a week, and start to track the data that you see from that, you can start to see 
trends that are developing in your stores in between those manual counts or those full counts that you, that you do anyway. And you can start to be adjusting your strategies throughout the year instead of waiting for those, um, those manual counts to happen. And we've seen some real value being driven for the loss prevention teams by implementing some of these analytical tools on the RFID data. You know, there's, there's a number of different areas where you know, we're, we're seeing RFID data be leveraged from a loss prevention perspective. Um, one, uh, one of the retailers that we were doing work with stuck some RFID readers at the exit, um, and they were using it. So they had a policy that, you know, unless the customer had, you know, if they'd lost sight of that customer anytime during the customer journey, even if they know that that person had put something in their bag or had put something, um, you know, under their shirt, um, they were not able to intercept um, but using RFID at the exit, if they got a read of that product that they were suspecting the person took, they could make a decision of whether they wanted to intercept there or not. Um, and so it wasn't necessarily connected to the alarming, but it could be used by the in-store loss prevention teams. Um, we've seen some really interesting solutions from a fraud detection perspective, especially returns fraud, um, where a retailer can take a look at an item coming back and scan the item at, uh, at point of sale, and they can actually see if that item was ever marked as sold. And so if someone's doing a receiptless return of an item that was never marked as sold, uh, they can start to make decisions as to how they want to handle that. Um, one example of a retailer that we were doing some work with, um, they actually had uh, an incident where somebody brought up to the counter a fairly large amount of product um, for a, re a receiptless return, and what was interesting is that product had actually been seen in the morning cycle count. Um, so maybe several hours before this person was coming back to, uh, to do the return with, and that product actually had never been through point of sale. And so, but, you know, you, you can start to see, well, obviously maybe this product, you know, never even left the store. It was just picked up off the counter and brought over to the desk or whatever it was, but it was, it was a very interesting observation that was made by the team. Um, some, some other interesting solutions that we're seeing from uh, from an LP perspective is enabling um, investigations with RFID, not just in the store, but also one such example included um, for an, an ORC bus that happened where an RFID handheld or an RFID reader backpack was placed in with the team doing the ORC bust. And then the data was reviewed from that uh, from that bus to take a look to see well what what actually was stolen was anything that was there could they identify what stores it came from could they identify when the last time it was seen um, and give the police uh, some information to use that can give them an idea of where where this team was operating where the product was coming from when this product was taken um, and it was it was very helpful for uh, for those or for those teams as they were doing that investigation. Um, one last area which may not necessarily be as interesting, but I, I've always thought these projects are kind of cool. Um, we've seen a fair bit of diversion um, and, uh, and counterfeit product uh, detection using RFID. One solution, um, actually, that we've now seen at two different retailers we've, we helped prototype was an RFID-enabled backpack uh, that essentially could be walked around certain areas where they knew there was gray market material or diverted product. Um, and then they could use that information to start making decisions as to how they wanted to handle diverted products, such as if you could identify the distributor that this was sold through or the, the, the party that this product was originally sold through that shouldn't have ended up in the channel that it's in, you can start to have those conversations uh, with some real 
data um, to support your position with these uh, with these organizations who are putting products where they shouldn't be. I think Tony, that's that's kind of a, a quick snapshot of kind of the world of uh, of where things are with RFID today. What what one thing I'll throw at you: if you take a look at some of the largest retailers in the world today, we've started to see some of those largest players really kind of come down the RFID world. So you're seeing, you know, the in specialty, you're seeing Uniqlo, you're seeing Zara, you're seeing H&M using RFID. Um, obviously, in in the world of department stores, you've got Macy's using RFID. You know, they've been doing it for a number of years. From a brand's perspective, you're seeing, uh, you know, wholesale brands really kind of uptick in, in terms of that use of RFID. Um, and, you know, the, the latest news, I, I wouldn't call it new news, it probably has, has been out since uh, since January, December, January, maybe even a little bit before that, is Walmart is turning back on their RFID program. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, another excess of billions of tags um, coming, uh, tag product coming into the marketplace. You know, and, and then you've got people like Nike and Under Armour and Adidas and, in the sporting world, you know, all turning on RFID onto their product. And so really we're starting to see a confluence of, of retailers, especially in the apparel footwear and accessory space, um, start to use RFID. And then, you know, you've got the, the, the mainstays of like Lululemon, who's really taken it to the next level with how they've integrated with Omnichannel and, you know, continue to knock it out of the ballpark, even during COVID, um, with their integration between physical and, and digital um, and of course, Target has been doing some really interesting things with RFID. So really, the, the big players have all kind of adopted it now, and we're starting to see we're starting to see it no longer be a fringe technology, but really something that the masses are using. So with that, Tony, I'll hand it back to you. Um, and if there's any other questions, I'm happy to answer. No, thank you very much, JP, for that excellent update. I appreciate it. Uh, let me uh, move on to uh, some other industry data that will be important this week. Um, uh, and um, number one is I want to talk about Amazon because Amazon will be in the news this week. Um, so Amazon, uh, the Wall Street Journal this week published their market share for online. So Amazon has a market share of 38% of the online retail sales. And I was shocked how far behind Walmart is. It's actually only 5.8% share for Walmart and then eBay at 4.5%. So uh, really, um, Amazon is a dominant player in online and continues to be. And also interesting from the Wall Street Journal is uh, the share of Amazon for cloud services. So Amazon has 48% of global cloud services followed by Microsoft at 16% and Alibaba in China at 8%. So again, very dominant position. And in fact, it is the web services that is actually driving the majority or 70 percent profitability of Amazon. So as you hear Jeff Bezos this week uh, speak publicly, uh, keep in mind uh, the market leadership that they do have in the online retail industry. Let me uh, shift gears to some other um, interesting data that I found uh, this week. Um, there was a new PwC global consumer study and that actually asked how often do you shop with mobile devices and this re-emphasize again how shopping is changing. So uh, on mobile phones prior to the pandemic, it was 30%. That went up 45% uh, during the pandemic and 93% uh, said they plan to continue that uh, on going forward. 
Also, during the Global Retail Summit, I talked about voice as a potential future channel for retail. And actually, PwC pointed out that smart voice assistants were being used at 15% prior to the pandemic for shopping, and that went up 23%. So voice is becoming another one of those, those platforms. And as I said, in the Global Retail Summit, I think also social commerce um, is going to be an important platform for retail going forward. In some interesting news from CNN this week, um, where they summarize um, what's going on in terms of bankruptcy. So, so far this year, 21 private and public retailers have filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. That's more than double than the same period last year. In total, last year, only 20 retailers in 2019 filed for bankruptcy. So really uh, a major, major uh, acceleration, especially in sectors such as uh, apparel uh, and some of the things that we just talked about. And then finally, which retail technologies will receive the greatest investment in the post-COVID-19 environment? This was interesting because I know Reed and team at LPRC is spending a lot more time in this area. So the top three are uh, 38% is home delivery, 22% is curbside pickup, and 22% is contactless payment. So those are the top three technologies that are getting attention in the post-COVID-19 environment. Again, I would encourage uh, working with the LPRC to optimize these from our loss prevention point of view. So with that, I'm gonna turn over to Reed. All right, thank you so much, Tony, uh, JP, uh, obviously Tom as well um, for a great wrap up. Uh, we're really excited about this interface, this integration of, of the visibility data that come from RFID, uh, particularly down to sometimes the SKU unit, unit level. Um, very exciting when you tether that, especially with CCTV, um, you know, some of the mobile signatures are coming out of devices when people opt in and otherwise. Um, and then, of course, point of sale data. So, you know, the idea of combining and then leveraging uh, artificial intelligence uh, capabilities to make sense and really understand patterns uh, for prediction or, or certainly better prognostication and things like that are, uh, hold a lot of promise for particularly for the green shoppers uh, user experience. So. Uh, thanks so much for that summary, and, and it's very exciting. And and by the way, Tom, on the Garmin device, um, I've had one for probably almost six years that I use for workout, and you can gauge all kind of things, sleep, for example. Um, and I was one of those probably millions around the world that woke up and like, man, this thing won't sink. So, um, but it just is a it really, really hits home on how just one person clicking on one thing they shouldn't that looks maybe very, very convincing. Um, can lead to absolute disaster. Um, and so uh, at our team, I know we work on it constantly and, and you just never know, but uh, both UFIT and then for the LPRC side, um, we're, we're trying to, and we recommend that. So everybody, please stay safe out there, um, distance, mask, um, but please at any time, give us a ring, uh, hit our website, lpresearch.org. Uh, I want to again, thank everybody for listening. Uh, so signing off from Gainesville and thank you to the team. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more Crime Science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. 
The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Ellis Prevention Research Council.